welcome to the Move Daily Health Podcast, where we share information to empower you to be your own health hero. Welcome back to the Move Daily Health Podcast. I am Dane Wallace, once again, here with Freya Spence, and today we are doing another quick hit FAQ podcast, which will be a roughly 15 minutes, and these are all questions that have come into us from either our clients or on the Instagrams, or maybe I made them up because I wanted to talk about something. So Freya, we're going to start with you, and the first question we have, is running bad for my knees? Is running bad for my knees? Mm. No. Uh, yes. No. <laughs> <laughs> running, I'm not totally sure why people think running is inherently bad for their knees, um, but they think that it's like too much load on their knees. And the one thing I would say about load is that you're always under load. So if you are, say, for example, sitting for 10 total hours a day uh, in the same chair, most people vary it up a little bit, but just for example, uh, you're in the same chair, same position. That's a lot of load in that one position for all of your joints, never mind also your knees. And so when we consider load in the context of like you're always under load and you look at the positional variability you do or do not have, um, you can you can get a greater sense of what will actually keep your joints healthy. And running is something that people tend to do for, you know, if it's recreational, five to 10 kilometers a week, or maybe it's up to 40 kilometers a week. It really, it really does depend. Some people are not well suited to running and that's fine, but it's not because running is like inherently dangerous for the knees. In fact, in the context of osteoarthritis, for example, they have used um, running as an intervention in studies to see whether that improves or, or worsens people with osteoarthritis. And it it tends not to worsen it. But more importantly, how you run is really key. So if you go from chair postures to running and that's your only movement input, the cumulative load of those positions is very similar. So always in flexion at the hip, at the knee, and probably more plantar flexion at the ankle. That just means like toe down position. So we have to look at getting movement variability first and foremost is that my bracelet? Mm-hmm. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I totally didn't mention take that off about five minutes ago. We're good. Let's keep going. Anyway, running in and of itself is not the problem. A lack of variability can be a problem whether you're running or not. And how you run, both in terms of frequency, intensity, and technique, can also play a huge role. Having a shoe, for example, that's much heavier tends to um, create less running economy and efficiency than a shoe that is lighter. I did not say a toe-like barefoot shoe. I said a shoe that's lighter and more flexible, which allows your foot to do its job properly, which then reduces the load at the knee. So there are a lot of layers to it, but at the end of the day, running is not inherently bad. In fact, they've shown on multiple occasions that it is not dangerous and not bad in like specifically for the knee, but you have to take the whole human into context, how often they're doing it, how much time and intensity are they adding? Are they qualified for it anyway? And does running look from a joint perspective, like everything else they do, because if that's the case, they they would be better served with something that, you know, opens their hips and brings their knees through a bigger range of motion, that kind of thing, or they can do that in addition to, to running. So it's not really like running inherently adds this crazy amount of load. It's, it's more 
do you have a lot of variability? Are you, you know, stable, qualified enough, stable from a joint perspective and, and qualified to run? Or are you jumping from the couch into your 5K five times a week? Like that's probably not going to feel great. That um, is also incorrect. That is also incorrect. But honestly, like from a knee health perspective, you're way worse off doing no activity than you would be running even if you had heavier shoes, right? Like being active in that context is is definitely going to outweigh a far more sedentary lifestyle. That will aid your joints for sure. Agreed. Yeah. So, Dane, um, calories in, calories out. Does that matter for weight loss? Yes, it does matter for weight loss. But counting? but not in the way you think it does. Mm. See, calorie counting is just gives you a false sense of security, false sense of control over something because you cannot dictate how much your body is going to absorb from foods, use from foods, store from fu- foods. It's just, it's, it's an act in futility to do that. Um, and the same thing, you don't know what calories out are going to be when you do exercise. You can't pinpoint that precisely. The one way to figure out this equation for you Oh, well, if you really want to dial in your caloric intake, you can also do a fecal analysis to find out just how much you absorbed. Exactly. So if you live in a lab and you want to measure your poop every day, you go right ahead. And that is how you can accurately measure calories in, calories out. But no, calorie counting is never going to be accurate, even if you think that it is. And so, yes, calories do matter for weight loss. They're very important. It's the only way you can gain weight or lose weight is to either be in excess or be in um, a deficit. And if you want to, so if you want to control this as best as possible over time, your best bet is to focus on healthy habits, getting enough sleep every day, staying active every day, eating majority whole foods. And over time, you will become healthier and you will lose some weight, but you can't control it with white knuckles by counting. Freya, this is up your wheelhouse here. Do all hypermobile people need physio? Up my wheelhouse, is that? Like a saying? Is that look a it, saying? Look it. In your wheelhouse. Shut it. Up. Answer the question. In your wheelhouse. Uh, okay. <laughs> Sorry. Words. Do all hypermobile people need physio? Uh, no. So I'm going to qualify that. Do all humans need movement? Yes. Do all humans need guidance on movement in the context of injury? Probably yes, unless it's their own expertise, in which case they can probably sort themselves out. Um Physiotherapy is the number one recommendation for hypermobile people, and there is a relatively low success rate. That's not to say that some people don't find success. Some people definitely do, but it, it's like around every every study I've read is like around the 50% mark. So 50% find it helpful, 50% find it not helpful. Um, and so that's not to say the discipline is not good or adequate um, because there's a ton of variability based on the practitioner and their experience with hypermobility, which is uh, generally low across the board at all levels of healthcare, uh, strength coaches, physio, chiro, like you name it. Um, so it really does depend on whether you find a practitioner that understands it well and that also understands you as a human well. <laughs> um, but it's not the only route. And so I would say no, like I haven't been to one in over a decade and that's not because I don't trust the discipline it's because that's not the modality that's helpful for me and I take care of my own exercise prescriptions because that is my expertise that's not the expertise of a physio and for hands-on treatment I 
I just found that my body responded differently or, or more optimally to other modalities. So you really do have to look at all of the hands-on practitioners try them all out, see what your system jives with, um, and don't get frustrated. If physio doesn't really, you know, quote-unquote work for you, that's okay. There are other modalities to try. Um, so it is typically the number one recommendation because it's the only thing they've done research in. <laughs> that doesn't mean that it's the only option out there. So there is that. Mm-hmm. Um, now, Dane, is a glass of wine every night really all that bad? For whom? That is the question. There's a lot of context and nuance here. Some people can quote unquote get away with that. Again, if it's a it's an actual glass of wine, which is only uh, you know a few ounces, not 12, 15 ounces of wine, <laughs> and if it's taken in at the appropriate time, i.e., not right before bed, and if the goal isn't trying to lose weight, if it's just to be healthy, you know you can you can quote unquote get away with wine every night. But most people who are asking this question understand that they're not feeling their best and they're trying to find a way to optimize how they feel or to, you know, lose a little bit of weight or improve their health, in which case strategies they can take would be to have less wine, maybe have it only a few nights a week or one night a week rather than every single day. Try and have it earlier in the night, maybe when you're making dinner as opposed to right before bed when it's going to impair your sleep. Have a less amount of wine, a lower amount of wine when you do have wine. So, Again, consider how you feel, and if you're not feeling great, then yeah, try and minimize the alcohol, whether it's wine or coming from another source. Um, If things are going great and you're having wine every night, maybe don't rock the boat, you're probably in good shape. But if you're asking this question, you probably know that you need to minimize it a bit. So look at the strategies um, that we just mentioned to reduce your intake, and you will probably find that you feel better when you have a lower amount and it's being taken in at times that, like I said, don't impair your sleep and hinder your mood and energy for the following day. Yeah, so if you can have a glass at like 2 p.m., you'll probably be fine. Absolutely. (laughs) Hey, and that's a crazy thing, right? Because, you know, we bash day drinking, but day drinking is going to permit you to go to bed earlier so and get a good sleep. Don't day drink, kids. We're not recommending that. It's just, it is, it is culturally a a thing that happens and a lot of people do it for a long time and they get adapted to it, but don't actually realize the negative, negative repercussions that there are to, towards their nighttime sleep until they remove it. So if you are literally doing that 365 days a year, it's worth your while to try to remove that for a couple of weeks because that's kind of more, um, yeah, it would give you a better sense of like what your body can actually do to optimize its well-being without an input like that. I mean, same thing goes for coffee, for Pete's yeah, sake. Yeah, like, absolutely. <laughs> There's a lot, exactly, a lot of substances. Go a while without and see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Any substance. So Freya, I wear orthotics, but I hear barefoot shoes are all the rage. Should I make the switch? <laughs> Well, barefoot shoes have definitely increased. I think the last statistic I heard was like 600% in the last five years. That's pretty awesome. That's significant. It is good. It is definitely good to see more companies out there um, offering barefoot footwear. Uh, Vivo Barefoot was like one of the very first ones. And then there are others that came on the scene as well. Um, 
locally we can get things like zeros and lems and um, there are other running shoes that follow that model. The, the key thing here is that orthotics, if you have an otherwise apparently healthy foot, meaning you haven't had a surgery or bone fusion or uh, something more medically complex like that, say you had a quote unquote fallen arch um, or a flat foot and they put you in orthotics or say you had a hip injury and orthotics helped reduce some of the pressure there for a while. Just understand that it's often used or should be used as a training wheel, not as a permanence. Any part of your body that you brace with support, with rigid support, will cause that area of the body to decondition. So if I put my arm in a sling to help uh, reduce the load on my shoulder while recovering from an injury, totally fine. If I continue to do that long-term without then re-strengthening, I'll run into problems. And the same is true with the feet. Um, but it's especially problematic because your foot is such an important part of your body to give the rest of your body input. That kind of goes back to our running question, right? So if somebody's wearing cinder blocks and orthotics, their foot's never really, like you're going to see long-term, you'll see, that they are getting weaker intrinsic muscle, muscles of the feet. And then this is also increasing loading at joints like the knees and the hips and the low back that are not built to absorb force the way the foot is. That said, if you're in orthotics and you're inside in Birkenstocks and like you never go barefoot, which is very common, sadly, um, you cannot or no, you can, you can do whatever you want. You should not jump straight to barefoot shoes. That's too aggressive. We have to like slowly retrain your foot, retrain your limbs to be able to, to accept, you know, a barefoot um, position, but also like the loading that goes, the type of loading that goes with that. So it's, if you take it as a training wheel and, and what we do is we program people depending on their time spent in more rigid footwear or orthotics or both, then we'll strategically introduce times at home that are barefoot. It might be, honestly, it might be five minutes at a time at first. Are you trying to show your foot? I did, but I, I, don't, think it, I don't think it reached think the screen. It caught that. Sorry, guys, can't look at my feet. <laughs> They're all breathing a sigh of relief. There's probably one person out there that's super upset. Oh, good grief. No offense, we're cool. All right, back on track. Um, point being... You have to look at the time you've spent in a more rigid footwear. So whether it's orthotics or just like stiff shoes or heavier shoes. And if you would like to work towards barefoot, that's fine. You just have to go in smaller doses. The other thing to keep in mind is the footwear you use depends on the activity you're going to use it for. So uh, if you're running long distances and you're on concrete, you're going to need a shoe with some padding. Um, it doesn't mean you need a motion control shoe and all of that jazz, but you should have a shoe with some padding. We're in a concrete jungle. If you're standing all day on concrete floors, depending on your foot type, you might benefit from having a little bit of a heel drop because it can take some pressure away from the whole posterior line of your body, which is like if you go from the bottom of your foot all the way up your backside towards your head, that's that line of tissue. So we do have deliberate shoe choices, but when you're at home, uh, you can be barefoot. If you're just like hanging out at the park or something, yeah, you can wear a barefoot shoe. That's a gentler surface on your feet anyway. It's a great way to adapt to it. But if like you're walking for a long haul or you've used orthotics for a really long time, you're going to have multiple stages that you need to introduce to really help your feet adapt and take your time. But, you know, even if 
I think a, there was a study that said, like, even if 60% of your time was spent in a barefoot shoe and the rest of the time when you're running and doing whatnot isn't a more supportive one, those people tend to have healthier feet and hips. Let's squeeze in one really quick one. Okay. The fruit? What about it? Does fruit really have too much sugar in it? <laughs> Relative to what? No, fruit has sugar in it. Awesome. Guess what? Most vegetables also have sugar in them. These are naturally occurring sugar, fruits. fruits <laughs> not, naturally <laughs> occurring sugars. This is going to be a quick one we fit in at the end, right? I'm trying to rush. Fruit is very Free. good for us, ladies and gentlemen. Fruit has sugar in it. Cool. Also has a ton of vitamins, minerals, phytonutrients, fiber. fiber, things that we all lack a lot of. Most people get, I don't know, 10 grams of fiber a day. Humans need 30, 40, 50 grams of sugar daily. Fiber daily. Wow, we're gonna we're doing a great job in this last one here. In any case, no, fruit does not have too much sugar in it. It is full of good things for the human body. If you are concerned about your sugar intake, Focus on processed food items. Processed foods, even if they have vitamins and minerals infused into them, the body does not absorb them like you would from a real piece of food. And we don't even know why that's the case. There are important cofactors in fruits and vegetables that we don't fully understand where we absorb far more vitamins and minerals from those than we would from processed foods. So no sugar does not have too much, fruit does not have too much sugar in it relative to processed foods. So anyways... Minimize processed foods, maximize fruit, and we're going to call it a day there because apparently I'm struggling, but you get the gist. Thank you for tuning in to the Move Daily Health Podcast, and we will catch you next time. We hope you enjoyed our conversation. To hear more, head on over to Stitcher or iTunes and subscribe to the Move Daily Health Podcast. And don't hesitate to leave us a review. Thanks for listening.